At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. My name is Andy Wistman. For those of you who don't know me, I ser- good morning. <laughs> I serve as the pastoral resident here at the Chesterfield campus, and we are starting a new series today where we're going to be walking through the book of John, specifically chapters 13 through 16. This new series is called The Follower's Trail Guide and will focus on our walk with Christ, following him well while living in a fallen world and also realizing that we cannot do it under our own power or will alone. Have you ever hiked up a mountain trail with many twists, turns, and branches along the way? It's hard to know where you are necessarily, or even be certain that you took the right path as the trail branched out. You'd long for a knowledgeable guide to lead you along the right path, someone who you could trust to get you safely to that beautiful view that's promised at the top. Thankfully, in the passage that we're about to read, Jesus teaches us both how to follow him through this journey called life and what it means to be a godly trail leader ourselves. To start getting our minds moving this morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And the first one is this. Do you know anyone in your life who claims to be a Christian but their lives do not reflect it. Don't need to raise your hands. We don't need to call anyone out. Just think about it. I'm sure we all do. Do you know anyone who claims to be a Christian, but their lives do not reflect it? Second question is this. Now that we've focused on other people, now it's time to look at ourselves. The second question is this. As we sit here in church today, How are you not following Jesus in your daily life? How are you not following Jesus in your daily life? To be a true disciple of Jesus means to follow him. So what does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Does following Jesus mean being a good person, saying the right things and doing the right things so that you love everyone and are loved by almost, if not everyone, back? Does it mean overturning tables, standing tall, and boldly proclaiming the truth to our culture regardless of the circumstances? Does following Jesus mean reading your Bible often enough and following him the same way that you follow someone on Twitter or Instagram, liking what he didn't say? Or is there something deeper to it? Today, we're going to dive into the text of John chapter 13 to see what it means to follow Jesus in the truest sense of the word. The context of the Gospel of John up to this point, before chapter 13, focused on the signs of the coming Christ. John the Baptist witnessed and testified to the coming of Jesus, which led to Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all of the Gentiles. Jesus continued performing miracles and signs while the Jews mounted their opposition against him, ultimately leading 
to their rejection of the very Savior and Messiah that they had been waiting for from God for so long. This leads us to John 13, where we see Jesus preparing the people of his community through the new covenant, represented by the 12 disciples, for the time after he would be crucified, buried, resurrect on the third day, and then ascend to the Father. As we open up God's word today, we will see that the big idea is that Jesus paved the way for us to follow. Jesus paved the way for us to follow. What we'll also learn today will be three ways in which Jesus paved the way for us to be true followers of him. The first being this. Jesus paved the way as a servant. Jesus paved the way as a servant. The second is this, that Jesus paved the way through his cleansing. Jesus paved the way through his cleansing. And then third, Jesus paved the way by giving us an example to follow. Jesus paved the way by giving us an example to follow. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on their outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. So right at the beginning of this passage, there's an obvious tension going on. Verse 1 states that Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world to the Father, loving his disciples to the very end. 
And then in verse 2, we see that Satan had already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. If Jesus knew that his hour had come and Satan had inspired Judas to betray Jesus to set in motion his crucifixion, who was in control? Thank you, Pastor Vince, for kind of spoiling that during announcements. God was. Verse 3 is a powerful statement that anchors this entire passage. And it says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, where he came from and where he was going. Our Lord Jesus was sovereign and in control over his life, including his death, the entire time. In fact, if you look in John chapter 19, Jesus was with Pontius Pilate, and he refused to answer Pilate's questions. Pilate asked him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus responded that Pilate wouldn't have authority to crucify him at all had God not given it to him first. Big words for a guy that can crucify you. But God knew, Jesus knew who he was, and he knows who he is. This is amazing truth that we must come to realize and wrestle with, that the cross was plan A all along for us. This Jesus, who was with God and was God at the beginning, through whom all things were made, who is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, upholds the universe by the word of his power and was in control of his story as his death neared. What did Jesus decide to do in this moment in John 13? Demonstrate complete humility. The Greek word for humble is tapinos. It's one of my favorite Greek words because, yes, it does mean humble, but it goes beyond that. It means of low stature or low esteem or just lowly. In Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus referred to himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Tapinos. In this moment, in John 13, we see in verse 5 that Jesus, the king of all kings, and name above all names, served his disciples by washing their feet. Washing their feet. This leads me to our first point, that Jesus paved the way as a servant. Jesus paved the way as a servant. This passage reminds me of a parable of two kings. Each king ruled their own nation, and their nations were neighbors to each other. The first king ruled with an iron fist. Every citizen trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength and ability to crush anyone who spoke out against him or dare to disagree with him. He was scary. He spent most of his time either ruling from the throne room of his castle or going out to either start war or make political treaties with other nations. If a citizen saw him, it was only as his heavily guarded caravan was either going in or out of the city, passing them by. The second king, however, ruled as a man of steel and velvet. His strength and might matched the first king, and he was also spending time ruling from his throne room, making war and making political treaties. But he also did something else. He would clothe himself as a beggar 
in shabby clothing and go into the city without his royal guards. He would talk to his people as one of them. He bandaged the wounds of the injured, provided food to the destitute, and summoned thieves to his royal court, not to prosecute them for their crimes, but to confront them and offer them jobs to labor and pay for their needs. Which king do you think was loved most by his people? The man of steel and velvet. Why did the second king do what he did? Because he loved his people. John 13, 1 says that Jesus loved his own and loved them to the end as king, but also as a servant. Who is this Jesus that we serve? Servanthood as a high placement is one of the most difficult concepts for us as humans to understand. Even Jesus' own disciples struggled with it. They argued over who was the greatest, multiple times actually. And even James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus through their mother, not themselves, but through their mother, and asked Jesus for one to sit at his right hand and one to sit at his left hand in Jesus' glory. Jesus had to correct his disciples' mindsets in Mark 10, 42 through 45, saying this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In order to see how this scripture applies to each of us today, we must wrestle with the nature of Jesus' lordship and our relationship with him as his servants. Some of us may not even realize that we are his servants when we are in Christ Jesus. As Americans, we don't like the idea of serving. Our, car, our corporate world tells us to rise to the top through hard work, seize the day through confidence and assertion, become the boss, be the boss. We have not been trained by our culture to serve others. Yet, that is what Jesus did. Jesus' actions here show that his lordship is not the same as the lordship we typically see in the world today. He willingly performed the task of washing his disciples' dirty feet, which would tell us that his servanthood is not incompatible with his leadership as king. In fact, it says here that Jesus knew that his hour had come, and when that hour came, it was the greatest service for sinners the world would ever see in the history of man, bearing our sins for the sake of our redemption. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, equality, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
beautiful. Jesus humbled himself in paving the way as a servant, which was our first point. There that word is again, sapinos, humble, lowly in stature, by washing feet, the lowest job of any servant in the household. An undesirable task, given that they wore sandals and not new balances that would cover their feet completely. Imagine the smell, the dirt, the grime. The disciples' dirty feet represented their need for cleansing, which leads us to our second point, that Jesus paved the way through his cleansing. Jesus paved the way through his cleansing. Join me again in John 13, starting in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. So at this point, Jesus had already begun to wash his disciples' feet. Each of the disciples was reclining on thin mats around the table, each leaning on their left arm when Jesus washed their feet. So contrary to popular understanding, when we see the artwork of the Last Supper, they were not sitting in chairs. They were sitting on mats and reclining on their left arm. As I mentioned already, feet in the ancient world were always dirty from traveling the dusty roads. Ancient roads weren't nearly as nice, smooth, or well-maintained as the roads that we enjoy here in the great state of Michigan. Mm, how are y'all enjoying the construction around here? Yeah. Boo. <laughs> when men would arrive as guests at a home, they would take off their sandals and a servant would wash the feet of each guest before each guest joined the master of the house for a meal. Jews saw this task as demeaning, which would explain Peter's initial response. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who asked, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter clearly felt uncomfortable with having Jesus wash his feet in such a humble act of service to him. According to the Jewish laws and traditions about the teacher and disciple relationship, a teacher had no right to demand or expect that his disciples would wash his feet. And at the same time, it was absolutely unthinkable that the master would get up and wash his disciples' feet. Any of the disciples would have gladly washed Jesus' feet, but none of them were interested in washing each other's. If they had to wash Jesus' feet, they'd have to wash the others, which would have been admitting that they were below their competitors in the, in the discipleship hierarchy. No one wanted to do that. Jesus, knowing Peter's heart, corrected him. He said to him, what, do I, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter's response was to essentially instruct Jesus that this act was beneath him. You shall never wash my feet. 
that is what pride masked as humility looks like. It also proves Jesus' point that Peter and the disciples did not understand what the washing of their feet represented. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And can I just say, I am so grateful for what Jesus said and how he said it in this passage. He did not say, be holy and perfect, or you have no share with me. He didn't say, be an expert in the Bible, or you have no share with me. He certainly didn't say, have your life all together and have everything figured out, or you have no share with me. No. Having a share with Jesus begins by receiving the free gift of salvation in him as your Lord and Savior, not by achieving something ourselves through our own actions, as if we can achieve our own salvation. Who else here is grateful for that? I know I am. It's incredible that there's nothing we can do. He chose us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, illustrates this clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved in Christ Jesus for good works, not by good works. The good works that are pleasing to God are a natural extension of a transformed life in Jesus Christ. The cleansing that Jesus provides here is done in two ways, permanently and continuously. The first way is that when we are converted to become believers by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are decisively cleansed from our sin to such completion that we enjoy salvation permanently. And I have to say that because I know some of your stories in here and I know the hurt that has been caused by the lie that you can lose your salvation. That is saying that sin is more powerful than the cross and it's not true at all. The second way Jesus washes us comes in verse 10, where Jesus said, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. When you are saved, you cannot lose your salvation. And yet you might have noticed that we as Christians tend to sin pretty much every single day. Fair? Okay, good. I'm glad that I'm not the only one. I feel a little better up here now. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All day long. All day long. The reality is, is that through our salvation, we are freed from the power and penalty of sin, but not from its presence just yet. We are freed from its power and penalty, but not its presence yet. Being freed from the presence of sin will come when Jesus comes back. And we have to understand salvation and that it works in the past, present, and future tenses. And here's what that means. I'm going to use three big theology words, but they're important for us as believers to understand. So follow me, and if you have trouble, find me after service, and I'll help explain it better. But here it is. This idea of the past. I was saved in the past. This is called justification. Justification. This legal right standing before God that because of the work done by Jesus on the cross, when God the Father sees us, he sees Christ. It's that, it's that Chris Tomlin song, He Became Sin Who Knew No Sin, that we might become His righteousness. 
he sees Jesus. So I was saved in the past. Second is I'm being saved in the present. This is called sanctification. And sanctification is when we become uh, Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ day by day. So if you hear about be, being, becoming more like Jesus, that's what that is, sanctification. And it's a lifelong process that we just don't meet until God takes us home or he comes back first, whichever it is. So that's being saved in the present. And then third, I will be saved in the future, which is called glorification, where the final stain of sin is removed from all creation, not just us, but all creation, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. I was saved, I am saved, I will be saved. Our God has thought of everything. When we sin, it doesn't dirty us to the point of us losing our salvation and becoming outcasts as we were before. But we still must deal with it. So how do we deal with our sin on a daily basis? 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. What sins do you struggle with as a Christian? Maybe anger? Towards your spouse? Towards your children? Family? Co-workers? Maybe fellow Christians? Or maybe you're even angry at God as you sit in your seat today. By the way, how have you been driving lately? Happy-go-lucky? Road rage? Yeah. Maybe addiction is something you struggle with. To alcohol, drugs, food, pornography, video games, social media. Maybe you struggle with jealousy towards the success, possessions, and things that other people have. Or maybe you struggle with sexual sin and lust. Maybe you feel that your sin is so incredible that God couldn't possibly want you to return to him, let alone forgive you, and you feel the weight of your guilt and shame today. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we, when we repent and turn away from our sin-filled life, confessing it to him. Peter preached the good news of the kingdom and cast out de uh, demons in Jesus' name. Peter saw Jesus transfigured in his glory together with Moses and Elijah. Peter's own feet walked on water in an amazing act of faith. And yet, he still needed his feet washed. Praise God that in our Savior, Jesus Christ, he paved the way to follow him through being a servant, our first point, and through his cleansing, our second point. In light of that, we come to our final point today. Jesus paved the way by giving us an example to follow. Jesus paved the way by giving us an example to follow. Join me again in John 13, starting in verse 12, please. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate the, my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So as Jesus was uh, finishing washing his disciples' feet, he asked them if they understood what, they had done, what he had done in verse 13. Jesus' entire life was a lesson and example. But here he asked this question specifically to draw attention to this lesson. The washing of their feet meant something. Jesus then reminded and encouraged them that he is their Lord and teacher in verse 14, followed by telling them that he has given an example for them to follow. The example that Jesus gave to his disciples was that they must be willing to do what he was willing to do including acts of service that the culture deemed undignified. As the master, Jesus is greater than all of his followers, us included. If a task such as foot washing was not beneath him, Jesus' disciples should not have considered any form of service to be beneath them. Who here growing up had chores as a kid to do? Anyone? Yeah, I'd hope everyone, but I mean, not everyone. Yeah, what was your least favorite chore? Okay, dishes. Yeah, mine was a toss-up between cleaning out the fridge and all of its compartments and cleaning out the bathroom that I shared with my sisters. <laughs> cleaning the bathroom was the worst because I grew up with two sisters who had thick, long hair. So anytime I'd go in to clean the bathroom, I'd shudder as I walked up to the tub, I'd pull back the shower curtain. There would be hair on the floor, hair on the walls. I'd look up. There's hair on the ceiling. They were short. I don't know how that happened. But does it look like I understand how that happens? I don't know how that happened. But there was hair everywhere. It was like I had to clean up after Chewbacca took a shower. And that's not a slam on my sisters. That's just how gross it was. There was hair everywhere. Here's the point. As sinners saved by grace... Through faith in Christ Jesus, he gave us an example to follow. And that example involves getting our hands dirty sometimes for the sake and love of other people. But first of all, because of our love for Jesus. Not only that, but those difficult acts should be done with a joyful heart. When I cleaned the bathroom, I did it for the sake of the love that I had for Jesus, but also for my family unit, even if I didn't really want to do it. And I got to make Chewbacca noises to really annoy my sisters as I pulled hair out of the shower drain. <laughs> Drove them nuts. But I love doing it. That's, that's what made it worth it to me. The example of Jesus washing his disciples' feet points to our need to be willing to meet the needs of others, to put others before ourselves, and to not be puffed up with pride. It's a call to humility and to a readiness to serve 
one another. And by the way, this goes both ways in acts of service. Sometimes we show a servant heart by accepting the service that others give us. If we only serve others and refuse service ourselves, it can actually be a sign of deep, deeply hidden and rooted pride. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said, Man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. For there can be much pride and condescension in our giving of service. Do not be afraid or too proud to give and receive acts of service, especially with others in the church as servants through Jesus' cleansing that we might follow him. Jesus paved the way for us to follow. Don't give in the idea of being what pastor and author Dallas Willard called a barcode Christian that just wants to be rung up by the great scanner in the sky. That idea comes from separating saving faith from following Jesus, thinking that we have it made as we are. That's not who God is, and that's not who he created us to be. We must follow Jesus' example with the right heart condition. While being a barcode Christian results in a lack of action, having the opposite extreme attitude of do more, try harder will lead to frustration and bitter disappointment as well. And believe me when I say this, I know it all too well. It will not fulfill you. Psalm 51, 16 through 17 tells us the heart of God and the heart we should have as a follower of Christ. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Our purpose in this life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that involves following Jesus by listening to him, learning from him, and obeying him with a broken and contrite heart towards God, his people, and towards the lost as well. When your heart condition matches God's following, obeying, serving, those things become things you want to pursue, not out of obligation, but out of love. Look at the very nature of the triune God himself, and you will see his heart for involvement and service. One of my favorite Bible teachers, Del Tackett, said this about God's involvement and service. He is deeply involved. God is not apathetic. He does not abstain. He does not renounce his responsibilities to fulfill his promises. He is faithful to the end. He is the father to the fatherless. He defends the weak and the needy. He is righteous and he does what is right. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. You cannot accuse God of copping out. He doesn't bail. He doesn't flee. He never retreats and he never abandons the battle. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He hears the cries of his people. He listens to them and answers their prayers. His providential hand has been felt by those who have come before us and will be felt by those who come after us. He brings peace in the midst of trials. He opens the prison doors and sets the captives free. He is present in the foxhole, and he knows when a sparrow falls. He is the ever-present, ever-near, the everlasting Father. He has not abandoned us, and he will not forsake us. He is involvement. 
So the question becomes for you today, who or what do you follow? Money, pleasure, celebrities and YouTube stars, recognition and power, if you're in school, popularity, your best friend, your spouse, your child, maybe even yourself. Pursuing the things of this world and Jesus at the same time is like holding on to two horses that are galloping in opposite directions. Many have tried, but all have failed. Today's sensation and bestseller becomes tomorrow's irrelevance, tossed in the garbage in favor of the next shiny object, which will then get tossed in the garbage for the next thing. Follow the one who is eternal. Follow Jesus, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that you give us. And Lord, please forgive us for being so prone to wander from the Lord we love, to go after the things of this world that end up being like mud pies that we make when you have offered us something so much more. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.